Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, July the 31st, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. As we speak, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is in Belfast meeting the leaders of the main political parties there. But how is the new British government strategy likely to play out over the next 92 days until October the 31st, when Johnson says uh, the UK will leave the European Union come what may? And what impact, if any, will the internal politics of the EU itself have on how events unfold. To discuss this, I am joined today by our Deputy Political Editor, Fia Kelly, by Helen Thompson, who's the Professor of Political Economy at the University of Cambridge, and by our London Editor, Dennis Staunton. Dennis, it's been a hectic couple of weeks. Uh, Parliament rose last week, the political establishment and uh, most people apart from Boris Johnson and his war cabinet will be heading off to Tuscany or Brighton or wherever it is they go for the summer holidays. But does that mean that we now have an intense period of reflection or just an intense period of nothingness? I think you're going to have an intense period of activity from Boris Johnson and his team. He started uh, in his government in the first week with uh, a huge amount of energy and focus and a sense of trying to get a grip on government, uh, appointing Dominic Cummings as his main advisor, uh, Michael Gove and Dominic Cummings running the, uh, the whole operation to get Britain ready for a no-deal Brexit. Boris Johnson himself campaigning effectively every day. He's been out somewhere making some kind of speech or some appearance every day since he uh, since he took office. So I think you'll see a great deal of activity, both in terms of messaging for Brexit, but also the uh, domestic policy agenda where he's moved uh, very quickly onto uh, Labour's patch in terms of essentially abolishing the doctrine of austerity, promising uh, money for everything from extra police officers more funding for education, more funding for housing, for health, for everything. Uh, and so, so so, I think you're going to see an awful lot of activity uh, here by Boris Johnson and his government. What you won't see really is very much diplomatic activity on Brexit. And I think the first moment you're going to see anything there will be towards the end of August when the G7 meet in Biarritz. And that will be an opportunity for uh, Johnson to meet Macron and Merkel and uh, some other European leaders and have a chance to, uh, to, to see each other face to face for the first time. And Helen Thompson, when that happens, you know, that when that focus shifts from the domestic, which, which uh, Dennis described there, to, the, to, to Brexit, to the elephant in the room, um, I, I'm looking at a, a piece you wrote for the New Statesman last week, and uh, the, the last line says, there are no shrewd or even prudent judgments left, this is in relation to Johnson, only extraordinary risks that in all likelihood will destroy the reputation of whoever takes them. Yeah, <laughs> I mean... I pretty much do stand by that. I mean, the, the the only thing, the only way that that isn't true is if there is still a very narrow, and I mean extraordinarily narrow, um, path that would allow um, the withdrawal agreement plus some, not, 
I think, change, plausibly changed to the actual treaty, but some ways in which there was framing around it in relation to the political de- declaration that could, in some sense, change the meaning of the withdrawal agreement or aspects of it without changing the text, whether that is, first of all, negotiable, and then whether that could be navigated through the House of Commons. Otherwise, that is the only orderly thing left that can happen. Otherwise, we're down the road of the Johnson government trying to take um, Britain out without an agreement and an attempt in Parliament to try to stop that that could conceivably end up you know, in the UK Supreme Court. Uh, and if it were the case that the people who would like the UK to stay in the European Union were to win, um, revoking Article 50 or trying to find a legislative majority in the House of Commons for a second referendum. And I think both of those for different reasons are you know, extraordinary, extraordinary risks to take. The only relatively, and it's not like it's risk-free, but the only, the only um, way forward that doesn't have extraordinary risks is the orderly exit path. And that is become, you know, one that is so narrow that it's, I think, difficult to see how it's walked. I'm not saying that it's impossible to walk that path. And it may be that the extraordinary risks attached to the other two options means that this one comes back into um, focus, but it is still extremely narrow. And it's really Boris Johnson himself who has made that path so narrow, isn't it, in terms of the the statements, I suppose, the hostages to fortune that he gave over, uh, both over the course of his campaign for the Tory leadership and indeed since he became Prime Minister? Yeah, I, I think that this one's a little bit harder to say um, where how much of it does fall on what Boris Johnson has said, um, because we do have to remember that the withdrawal agreement um, has been, you know, failed to get through the House of Commons three times and even the last one on the on the meaningful vote it was still a quite sizable majority that were um, against it and if you think about it there were basically some someone in four groups would have have to have would have to move either the 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 the, um, the people in the ERG like Steve Baker who refused to vote for the withdrawal agreement or the Tory remainers I think there were eight of them in the last um, meaningful vote um, or the DUP, or s- some of the Labour um, MPs who would like to see Brexit but are in a difficult position in terms of actually casting a, a vote um, for it. And by the time we got to the end of the third meaningful um, vote, I think the only group that looked like that they perhaps regretted the position that they took were some of the Labour MPs like um, Gareth Snell and Lisa Nandy. And there just weren't enough of them to suggest that actually it could have clearly made a difference to that um, outcome. So in one sense, I think that what Boris Johnson has tried to do is a KK, because remember, he did vote for the third, on the third meaningful vote after all to pass the withdrawal agreement, is to say that option's gone. We need the clarity of a position and the clarity of the position is we're leaving on the 31st of October, come what may. Fear the Taoiseach finally spoke to Boris Johnson uh, by phone yesterday. Um, the, the, it was described by both sides as a warm conversation, but, but, but from the descriptions on both sides, there wasn't uh, exactly a meeting of minds either. Um, the, the narrow path, the unlikely and narrow path, um, which Helen describes there, I mean, does the Irish government see any possibility of that? 
position, as they've said repeatedly, is that the withdrawal agreement won't be reopened. And just before um, coming into the studio here, there was an exchange on the radio between Geoffrey Donaldson uh, of the DUP and Michael Creed, our Minister for Agriculture. And Geoffrey Donaldson fairly well indicated that in their meeting with Boris Johnson in Northern Ireland yesterday evening that they impressed upon him perhaps the need for a time limit on the backstop rather than his position of outright abolition of the backstop. And still that was put to our government. Their position was no because they see a time limit as being of no use at all. Because, because it's, it's not a backstop. It's not a backstop. A like the fear is that you offer a five-year time limit, people in London just play for the corner flag and wear the clock down and then that it's out and you have nothing in five five or six or seven or eight years' time. It's hard to see the way tr- through um, because it's so narrow and anything Dublin would be minded to give by way of clarification and the political declaration, something that could sit on top of the withdrawal agreement but not need to be reopened, a Northern Ireland-only backstop, which would necessitate the o- reopening of the withdrawal agreement they aren't palatable in London, so it is very hard to see a way through right now. Um, the only thing is that, you know, you, you, watching what's happened in the last week, so we had Boris Johnson come into Downing Street with all this, you know, action and, you know, strong statements, and then you, you talk to people in government and they're kind of having a harder look now and say, OK, what's been done in the last week by way of no-deal preparation, what really has been done? We haven't seen any evidence for that apart from this war cabinet which is going to meet every day you know if we are talking about out by October 31st do or die people are saying well okay where is the meat in these no deal preparations in on the BBC News last night he was in Wales and he was asked about you know sheep farmers in Wales what are you going to do for those people who export overwhelmingly to the European Union he said oh you know we'll we'll, we'll find you know um, alternative markets for them that is not something you can do within eight weeks so bluff and bluster this position seems to be they haven't seen anything yet. Now that may come to, you know, put meat on the bones of this no-deal preparation. All they've seen is I'm setting up a war cabinet, it's going to meet every day, it has these people on it. So where is the action? They haven't seen it yet. What do you make of that, Dennis? What do you, what are you seeing or what are people seeing in the UK? I, well, I think it is pretty early. Uh, you know, they have, they have really just started. But I would be surprised if, they, if you didn't see a big stepping up. And I think, I suppose, if you look at no-deal preparation uh, here in Britain, there are two elements of it. One is getting things like infrastructure and ports and all of that ready. And then things like making decisions with regard to what do you do, say, with farmers, with sheep farmers? How do you mitigate the impact? But the other, which, is the, which in a way is a bigger part, is an information campaign. Because there are certain things that businesses have to do to get ready. They have to register. Uh, you know, they have to get a, a kind of an export number. And most of them haven't done that, particularly in small and medium-sized businesses. And part of the problem politically, of course, with doing that is that the more you talk about all of the things you're going to have to do to prepare, the more of a big deal in terms of uh, disruption uh, and no-deal Brexit starts to become. But I do think you will see over the next few weeks uh, a, a stepping up of these plans and, you know, and, and these mitigating factors put into place. Partly, I think, because uh, a no-deal Brexit is a real possibility and it's now more likely than it was before. But also, uh, I think what Boris Johnson wants to do is to make clear to the European Union that no-deal Brexit is an option for the British government. Until now, one of the reasons why the Europeans have been pretty relaxed is that they thought that, uh, you know, uh, first of all, Parliament would block a no-deal Brexit. And secondly, that Britain just wasn't ready. 
and so no self-respecting, no rational government would go for it. And if they did go for it, that they'd be immediately back a few days later to say, can we now start talking about a deal? Obviously, the more preparations you put in place uh, and the more mitigations uh, you arrange, then the more likely it is that actually this is a real option for Britain. And uh, and so that in some, say, in some ways strengthens Boris Johnson's negotiating hand in Brussels. And then the other question is uh, what happens politically. And I think one of the things that you have to look at over the next month, you've already seen uh, the Conservatives' poll rating going up. And what's really happening is that those Conservatives who uh, defected in terms of support to the Brexit party are coming back. And uh, and there was one poll which has the Brexit party down, I think, at uh, 13% today. I don't see any reason why over the next few weeks you wouldn't see the Brexit party support edge down into sing single figures and maybe even get down towards that sort of 5% that the rump of UKIP had uh, up to a few months ago. And so if you have that, then part one of Boris Johnson's political strategy will have been achieved in that he's uh, you know, uh, reconstituted that conservative support. And meanwhile, the forces uh, opposing a no-deal Brexit are divided because of Labour's weakness and the recent strength of the Liberal Democrats. Uh, it, you know, it now looks, uh, or it could, we could find ourselves in a position where he comes back in September, Parliament is back, and uh, these conservative anti-Brexiteers who are thinking of threatening a confidence vote so that uh, they would trigger an election, they might think twice about it if it looks like Boris Johnson might have a chance of winning that election with an enhanced majority. So I think that the uh, you know, the, the political activity that happens here uh, and the political actions by the government could have an important impact on what happens with Brexit once we get back into September. Sorry, Helen, I think you wanted to come in there. No, I just agree entirely with what um, Dennis has just said about the, the political situation. I think that the important thing that um, Boris Johnson has been able to do by this injection of energy is to give some sense that leaving the European Union has a political purpose again and is being led by somebody who understands that political purpose. It doesn't really matter what the relationship perhaps between perception and objective um, truth is um, here. Because I think one of the things that happened between the third meaningful vote and the summer before Boris Johnson became um, Prime Minister is just this sense of endless drift because there was a clear deadline, the 31st of March. Things looked like they were building to that climax. That wasn't what um, happened. Then it seemed that we just sort of postponed having to think about this massive existential question and waited for things to happen. Now things are starting to happen again. And for the first time, I think there's the possibility, I only say the possibility, that something like the entirety of the Leave, or most of the Leave coalition, I'm going to say that, most of the Leave coalition can be mobilised around a, a single political um, party. Theresa May looked like she was going there in the first few weeks of the general election campaign in 2017, then it fell away very um, badly um, for her. And if you're a Conservative MP who wants to stop um, Brexit, and there aren't that many of them after all, but given the fact that the de facto majority is going to be won, um, by this by-election tomorrow, in all in all um, probability, then they have um, a lot a, a lot of influence. Then that is going to change their electoral calculations. And I think this is crucial to 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 note that for a Conservative MP to vote against the government and the vote of confidence is the end of their political career in the Conservative um, Party. So 
I think that it's very difficult to see who Dominic Grieve, I think pretty clear that he is somebody who is willing to do that. But how many others would actually be willing to do that? I think it's a it's a very open question. It's one thing for John Major to be saying he's going to react in certain ways that are going to end up with a judicial review, etc. He's no longer in the in the House of Commons as a Conservative MP. It's what those Conservative MPs are actually willing to do. And the fact that nobody can actually know that, even perhaps themselves, I think is actually part of the political situation now. So, Fiak, in relation to that, if the rules of the game or the players in the game have changed as substantially as as, as Dennis and Helen are both saying, I think, you know, that there's a prospect of a, a, a potential general election which Boris, in which Boris Johnson could win a majority, um, if the, the idea that there's always a blocking majority in the House of Commons against no deal is thrown into, into question because of that, how does that impact on what the, uh, the EU and the Irish government would think and would approach these matters in September? Well, that is the presumption in Dublin and elsewhere has held sway that, you know, Parliament will, will, will block whatever he wants to do. And if if that changed in September, you know, they, they would have to reassess that situation. But it comes back to the point of what can they do to dissuade Boris Johnson from going from a no-deal Brexit if his bar is set so high of the abolition of the backstop, even if the situation changes dramatically, even if all the positions that have been previously outlined, such as Dennis and Helen have said, what do they give that can avert no-deal at the end of October? Like, what did the EU give? Do they give him entirely what he wants, which will be seen as other capitulation, rip out the backstop, give him a standstill agreement for a number of years while they fix a future political uh, or future trade deal? Um, again, I, it just goes back to the stakes being so high now, it's hard to see. Even with all those factors in play, even if the situation in London changes to such an extent, what can be done to pull it back? And I think that's a really difficult question. I, I can't see any easy answer to it. You're listening to The Irish Times. Helen, I was listening to you on the Talking Politics podcast um, last week, and you were talking about the way in which the internal dynamics of the main EU countries may play into the way that some of this is uh, is handled now over the next couple of months. You know, there's there's clearly a weakness in the in the German government. There's a weakness. There's there's no Spanish government essentially. Uh, the Italian government is on is on a knife edge. Apart from Emmanuel Macron, there's there's not kind of a a strong single voice there in Europe right now. And of course, we have the transition to the new uh, the, the new executive essentially of, of of the EU at the end of October yeah I think that this is a is a big deal and I think particularly the situation in Germany is a is a really um, significant contingency in, in what's going on because there are these um, state elections in um, Saxony and um, Brandenburg on the 1st of September I think. And in Saxony, in all probability, unless something changes dramatically, the Social Democrats are going to, you know, um, and this is a state that's very important to the the, the, the Social Democrats, are going to do badly. Uh, and the pressure on their participation in, in the coalition, which has never been popular amongst many grassroots Social Democrats in the first place, is, is going to grow. And if, if, if you factor in then the difficulties that, that Merkel has... Um, with her own coalition, including her successor, who's already, you know, like leader of um, the party, is if we get to a situation in, in September where we can see the end uh, of the German government, um, this particular German um, government inside, I, I find it very difficult to imagine how that doesn't impact on what that one that what then happens 
on Brexit through the rest of September um, and into um, October. I mean, I also think that the you know the geopolitical situation in the Middle East, particularly in regard to Iran and and um, then Trump's um, pressure on that issue, is also something that we need we 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 need to factor in. Is you know, things are not like politi- It's not just that in in Britain or in the, perhaps in even in Ireland that um, politics is as it was in you know February March um, of this year. Things have changed. Um, and they are going to have some impact in one way or another. And I think it's very difficult to foresee what they are, that will be in specific terms, but they are going to have an impact um, on the way in which um, Brexit issues play themselves out. Dennis, what do you make of that? I mean, you know Germany well. You, you lived there for, for many years. Do you think, do you think that there's, there'll be consequences of what Helen is describing? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think that, I think that what it all uh, tends to do is to, is to make the prospect of a no-deal Brexit even more unwelcome to a country like Germany or indeed to France uh, as well uh, than it was before, and uh, and so the, the, you know if if we look at sort of how what the narrow path to a deal is, it's partly based on the fact that if it's if it seems to be possible to get a deal, then the Europeans will want to get one. Now, one thing which I think you might see happening, though, or at least it's a possibility, and I may just be uh, Dr. Pangloss taking up residence in the House right now, but I do think that if, say, Boris Johnson's political position is strengthened by the time we get to September, and if this uh, abolition of the backstop is an opening bid, uh, negotiating bid on his part, and if, uh, if, if, if for him the date of departure is you know at the top of his hierarchy of promises that he, that they leave on October the thirty first, that then uh, you could find as you would have as as you probably would have found if he had made a, a different or more moderate uh, demand that there would be some pressure on Ireland to compromise on the backstop either with some kind of time limit, whether it was a straightforward time limit or a time limit with conditions. But that you could get into as you know some zone of negotiation where he would feel that he had a bit more room for maneuver in terms of doing a deal. And for example, in the House of Commons, an awful lot of people opposed Theresa May's deal, even at the very you know, on the third occasion, uh, the, uh, who perhaps might, given the choice between a no deal Brexit and a deal, might change their minds. These include some of the Conservative Remainers. They include some of the people that uh, in the Labour Party that Helen mentioned, the Lisa Nandies and uh, and company. And so I think there will be, you know, the, the, there could be a chance to get to, to form a, a majority around some kind of deal and if Boris Johnson has established his credentials already as uh, as Mr Brexit then he might have uh, you know have some capacity to do it but i certainly do think that if there was some possibility of him getting into a, a, a position where he's making a demand that's regarded as negotiable by the european union then i think there will be a great deal of pressure to do some sort of deal a reasonable deal which uh, perhaps removes the absolute certainty and security from the backstop for ireland but could uh, you know but nonetheless would would move us from uh, you know from the from the position that we find ourselves in now and I think that all those factors that Helen was describing will reinforce that. Sophia, if, if Dennis's Panglossian vision should come to pass, it all comes down really to Leo Varadkar, doesn't it? Because we know that from the perspective of the EU, it's actually politically vital that they are not seen to throw you know, throw yeah. Ireland to the wolves. So the idea of being open to compromise needs to be seen at least to originate in Dublin. 
I would think so. And you've heard, you know, the idea that the withdrawal agreement won't be reopened on the issue of a time limit. You know, in Dublin, you would hear people say, OK, a time limit on the backstop itself, no, but an outline of a time frame by which we see alternative arrangements being implementable, yes. So maybe a reversal of that. But whether that's acceptable in London is open for debate. Uh, I just can't see an easy way which in which for Leo Varadkar would accept a five-year or a 10-year limit on the backstop because that is hugely damaging to him. That is his reputation probably gone. That is the shattering of the all-party consensus in Leinster House on the Brexit. But if it is seen to originate, if there is a compromise to be done, it would probably be somewhere along those lines that perhaps not a time limit on the backstop itself, but a timeline for implementation of alternative arrangements with some sort of beefed up review mechanism within there, possibly. But whether that's saleable in London, I don't know. And I was just struck myself in the last week or so that people like Steve Baker and Marc Francois and these other hardline ERGers saying it's not just the backstop it's the whole withdrawal agreement it needs to go it needs to be junked so how would you combine a majority around the people you need the ERGers some of them who won't go for this if it's any way resembling the withdrawal agreement as it stands and reaching out it's just just, just quite difficult to see one thing I will say is that interestingly a couple of weeks ago there was a delegation from the CSU in Dublin, which is the Bavarian allies of the CDU, Angela Merkel's party. And they are all part of the EPP with Fine Gael and there was various events on to, you know, welcome them here, etc, etc, etc. And one of the TDs I was speaking to after they had dinner with their CSU colleagues came away and, and was slightly anxious about the fact that the message from some in the CSU had been, okay, well, peace is all well and good, you know, we have to look after trade. And the way it was put to me was it wasn't definitively definitively said, but it was left to hang there. And the person came away from the table thinking, mm, I just wonder. So meaning what? Meaning that, that the CSU, from their point of view, that a no mm. deal would have to be avoided for the sake of trade for Bavarian industry, that that was put across in one of these convivial dinners that happened a month or so ago in a very subtle way, but it was put across. I'm I'm sure if any um, proponents of Brexit were listening to this podcast, they would say, aha, when they hear that, because it's always been the case, isn't it, that they believe that the German car industry, largely located in Bavaria, um, would would feed into these kind of... Now, this was one person speaking to another person, and the person who said it to me, when I said, well, what does that mean? They're of the view, you know, we we should not back... Back, back down, a time limit is unacceptable. But it was just a kind of, I suppose, a little pebble in the shoe that this person walked away from the dinner with the CSU. Dennis, what do you think of that? I mean, there are kind of, I, I get the sense that over in the UK at the moment, there's there's intense focus, for example, on the Irish media or tweets by certain Irish politicians. I don't think Owen Harris has ever had such a high readership over there. You know, there, 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 there's an appetite for signals, straws in the wind of the kind that, uh, that Fiat described. But I wonder, do they really amount to much? No, I think there's certainly there's a huge appetite. You know, uh, people here, they do, uh, if they see any sign of a crack uh, in the sort of consensus in Ireland on the backstop, then uh, they do tend to season it as evidence of uh, some kind of panic setting in. And uh, there is obviously a danger on both sides that, uh, that we all misread each other's intentions. And I think it is sometimes underestimated here at Westminster just how solid that 
uh, consensus is with regard to the backstop and how there is no pressure really on Leo Varadkar in Ireland to compromise on it. And and so so that's certainly the case. And I'm not sure how uh, how Helen perceives it, but I certainly think that, that sometimes the, the, you know, every stray remark that's made by somebody in Ireland, and in the same way, actually, every stray remark that comes from Europe is mm-hmm. seen of, uh, uh, you know, is seized on as a sign of a crack in the monolith. And, uh, and maybe it's understandable, but it doesn't necessarily aid understanding. Helen, I, I think the thing with the with the um, the the CSU is is that to be honest, that that has always been quite a substantial position within um, the party, because the German car makers are an important constituency in um, Bavaria. The real issue is is what impact does this have on the way in which the German government itself um, is thinking, and thus far the position has been that the rhetorical integrity of the, the single market and defending Ireland's position in relation to the backstop comes first, and that not denying that the prospect or, or the risk of a no-deal Brexit is problematic for the car makers, but other things have political um, priority. So the question is, is, is there any evidence that that is actually changing in the German government's calculations? I don't see any evidence of that um, so far. But I, this is where I do think that what happens in Germany in September matters because a much weaker German government that might be looking at the end and the prospect, the possibility um, of another election is going to have a different kind of political perspective by which it judges these matters. Now, that isn't to say that it's going to move closer to the CSU position or at least this version of the, the CSU position. It just means there's more uncertainty than there was previously. And finally, Fiek, then in relation to that, doesn't doesn't the other part of that mean that that uh, Emmanuel Macron has a more dominant role in the in the overall EU position? Yeah, and you would hear people in Dublin always say, "Well, you know, we're quite confident of the French position. You know, we're confident of the German position, but it always comes with, with a caveat. You know, they're more worried about what may happen in Germany than may what what happen that may happen in Paris." Um, but that is the case that you know Macron is now the dominant player on the European scene, and I think from a Dublin perspective, they are confident that. He, his position is strong. It's just they do, you get the sense, although they never publicly say it, you do get there is a little scratch in the back of the mind about Germany. And I know recently when Michael D. Higgins was over in Berlin for a visit, they, they, they people came away kind of heartened that the meeting with Angela Merkel, at which certain people sat in on, they were reassured that the position had remained the same. But it is one they constantly watch in Dublin that if there is to be a, probably a wobble, that it may come from Germany. We shall leave it there. Thanks very much indeed to Helen, to Dennis and to Fiek for joining us today. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. And remember that you can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks for listening.